0: Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Not much to mention in the notes this week, just continuing to read through the pile, finding things that I've had on my to-read list for a long time. I'm working my way through many audiobooks. I am now second in the queue for the next In the Stormlight Archive series, so we might talk about that more in the next episode. Islands of Abandonment, Nature Rebounding in the Post-Human Landscape by Cal Flynn, a Scottish author and journalist. Her work has been published in Granta, the Sunday Times Magazine, The Economist, and others. She is the deputy editor of the literary recommendation site Five Books and a regular contributor to The Guardian. She was a writer-in-residence at Gladstone's Library and the Han Michalski Foundation in Switzerland. She was made a McDowell Fellow in 2019, and her first book, Thicker Than Water, was focused on frontier violence in colonial Australia. This is her second book. And I don't know exactly where I heard of it, but it was probably a featured article in Atlas Obscura. If not, the content and focus would do well with that audience. Islands of Abandonment is an exploration of places humanity has abandoned for a variety of reasons and how nature has responded. So this is a globe-trotting journey looking at many different locations. It's divided into 12 chapters, which are uh, also separated out into four parts. The differentiation is based on site population and usage. The first section is in absentia, mostly abandoned, such as Chernobyl and the Cypress buffer zone. Section two is those who remain, such as U.S. industrial zones heavily in decline, like seen in Detroit or Paterson, New Jersey. Some people still live in these areas, but they are no longer the powerhouses they were. Section three is The Long Shadow, Sites of Empire and Colonial Power, such as Amani, Tanzania, or Zone Rouge in France. The coverage of Zone Rouge is likely what added this book to my list, as that is a red area on the map in France where many of World War I leftover weaponry were discarded or disposed of and has permanently poisoned the land. The last section is Endgate. Places that no longer seem habitable, at least to humans, and the two main areas covered in that is Plymouth-Montserrat, a volcano that erupted, as well as the Salton Sea in California, or the Southwest. Flynn visited all these locations for that first-person experience and carried out interviews and researched their history. Flynn often had a guide where speaks of her encounters with wildlife and terrain in these lonely-for-human places. While one might expect a work of sorrow or darkness, this work instead serves as a story of hope or redemption. In all these locations, life continues. It has just been forced to adapt. And looking at the scope of history through these locales, we have vignettes of places as industrialized or developed by humans and their reversion when no one is there to maintain. Once the roof is gone, nothing holds nature back. If you're a fan of the TV show Life After People, this book explores that concept as it is already or has occurred or is occurring now. Nothing else, aside from Zone Rouge, it shows that life in some form is likely to continue. Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff a white American author of thriller, science fiction, and comic novels. He graduated from Cornell University, and he published his first book, Fool on the Hill, in 1988, and has since published seven works with a new book expected next year. I read Ruff's earlier book, Sewer, Gas, and Electric, the public works trilogy, and saw this book as being well-received and has since been adapted into an HBO series that I haven't watched. Lovecraft Country is eight interconnected stories of science fiction fan Atticus Turner and his family that explore racism in the United States intersects with the horror fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. And I began this book as an audiobook before switching to an e-book to finish it, not because I didn't find it engaging as an audiobook, just that I was hoping to finish it over the weekend when I wasn't as likely to listen to audio materials. It takes place mostly in the 1950s and capably blends the horror metaphysical themes with the real monster of racial inequality. We first meet Atticus Turner, a Korean War veteran, as he is driving from his workplace in Florida to Chicago after receiving a letter from his father. Atticus charts his course by use of the Safe Negro Travel Guide published by his Uncle George, which he helpfully has in him as he needs to draw upon it as he travels. The first story provides an introduction to the major characters featured throughout the other stories, such as Atticus's father, Montrose, his uncle George, and a friend from the neighborhood, Letitia Dandridge. An important aspect of the tale is the Turner family ancestry as slaves. But the Turner family and Dandridge sisters are far from helpless. They actively speak up for themselves and test the limits of acceptable white conventions. Letitia Dandridge is the character I always wanted to hear more about for her actions in the first story, but specifically for story two, Dreams of the Witch House, where she is the main character. In some ways, it feels like we're visiting the world of uh, Clark's Ring Shout many decades later. Our Band Could Be Your Life Scenes from the American Indie Underground 1981-1991 to 1991 by Michael Azerrad, who is an American author, music journalist, editor, and musician. He is a graduate of Columbia University, and his writings have appeared in Spin, MTV News, Mojo, Revolver, Rolling Stone, and The New York Times. In 1993, his book Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana was released, and it was official authorized biography of the band. Azarad was able to interview the various members and include archival material shared with him. Kurt Cobain was able to read it ahead of his death and was republished following it to talk more of his legacy. After the publication of Our Band Could Be Your Life, Azarad became the editor-in-chief of E-Music before eventually just going back to writing full-time. At this point, I'm not entirely sure where I first heard of this book, as it has been on my to-read list for quite a number of years. It is profiles of punk bands from their formation to established acts, even if they never achieve mainstream success. We typically see the band again from that formation to their eventual breakup, if they have by the time the book was published. Some of the notable bands featured in this work are Black Fat Flag. Minor Threat, Sonic Youth, and Fugazi, and another eight bands. This book serves as a nice companion work to Dan Ozzie's sellout. Our band helps explain why po- punk was posed to break in 1994, but looking at these 13 bands and their activities in the 1980s. E- each chapter is the story of one band, and while there are some commonalities, such as touring and recording, we are treated to the inner workings of the band, some who are groups of friends, others who are merely focused on business or the music. And while not all bands necessarily found success, most of them have gone on to be regarded as at least highly influential. Azarad conducted many interviews and drew from old fanzines, books, and newspaper coverage to generate this book. Unfortunately, it is a very white male-dominated work. Female artists are only featured in three of the bands profiled, and in the Minor Threat section, Azarab makes a point to discuss this, but not really address it, saying that women were really more so on the sideline, working in zines, but not really performing in any of the bands at the time. He also does not really investigate some of the lyrical themes, such as Minor Threat song that talked about uh, racial issues. It's merely just said, he doesn't really feel this way anymore as the person who wrote the song without really interrogating what the meaning of the song meant at the time of its release. Overall, interesting book of where music was in the 80s, particularly the punk scene. But oh, the Love Goes to a Building on Fire, Five Years in New York, did much better in looking at music as a whole and interrogating the different. Regions, styles, and individuals involved. It wasn't focused on the white male. Touch of Jen. Beth Morgan is an American author. Her work has been published in the Iowa Review and the Kenyon Review online. She studied writing as an undergraduate at Sarah Lawrence College and is currently, according to her personal webpage, completing her MFA at Brooklyn College. Like some of the other books talked about this episode, I'm not entirely sure where I first heard of it but my best guess would be probably a book riot list, but I don't know with certainty which one it was. A Touch of Jen is focused on Remy and Alicia, a couple struggling to make to survive on service industry jobs in New York City. They have a shared obsession in Remy's former colleague, Jen, a beautiful woman whose fortunes have changed as she now travels frequently and designs jewelry. One day, they bump into Jen and are invited on a surf trip to the Hamptons. Tensions rise, both sexually and due to economic differences, and then things get really weird in the latter half of the book. Like some other books we've talked about in the show, this one has some major plot twists that we can't really talk about without ruining the surprise for you. The first half is focused on Remini and Alicia and their day-to-day relationships watching TV together, going out for drinks and bars, making fun of people they interact with throughout the day when safely at home and can share that in a safe place, spending a lot of time looking at their phones and overanalyzing text messages or posted photos. There's a lot of concern and struggle with appearances and meaning, both virtually and in person. They also have a roommate, Jake, who seems to take everything in stride and be endlessly cheerful, even if he wanted to paint. The kitchen black. Does Remy want to be with Jen or just his imagined version of her? Does Alicia want to be with Jen or become Jen? Can you truly manifest your desires in the natural world? Hark! A Vagrant by Kate Beaton, a Canadian author and illustrator. She has a degree in history and anthropology from Mount Allison University. She began drawing comics for the university newspaper but didn't start publishing her comics online until 2007 when she also worked at the maritime museum of british columbia named hark a vagrant beaten posted content from 2007 to 2018. her work has appeared in the new yorker and publications by comic publishers dark horse marvel and drawn and quarterly since then she has been working on a personal graphic memoir of her time working at an oil sands mining project, and the development of her 2015 children's book The Princess and the Pony into an animated TV show for Apple TV. I've come across these strips before on the internet, uh, but never really sat down with a book until I think earlier last year. This is the first published collection of Beaton's webcomic. There is a second. Uh, this one was nominated for a Goodreads Choice Award in 2011 and was named one of the top 10 fiction books of 2011 by Time Magazine. That same year, the comic strip also won the Best Online Comics Work Award, Harvey, and the Outstanding Online Comic Ignatz Award. If you have any history, interest in history or literature, and we're on the internet between 2007 and really now, but probably 18, You have probably seen some of Beaton's work. They are a fun romp through idiosyncrasies, interests, and humor of a history major in anywhere from three to eight panels, or in some cases, sustained multi-strips. Much of the content strikes humor from historic figures or characters speaking in modern language or using current ideas, or ideas, anachronisms. Some series I enjoyed in particular was a series of comics detailing the plot of a book based entirely on the design of the book jacket as created by Edward Gorey. Burke and Hare on the job, poorly deciding who their next victim should be. Or perhaps why Benedict Arnold was so angry and deserted the American cause, so maybe someone would remember him. All these and many more can be explored, and if you choose to explore them through Beaton's webpage, you can choose to look through by topic, jumping around between the history, literature, or the miscellanea she's created. They're a blend of history and culture with simple, childlike humor, and it's a very light way to end the episode. Or it would be if we weren't going to talk about a Reading Soon in Progress book for this episode Gross Anatomy dispatches from the front and back. Maria Altman's volatile and apprehensive relationship with her body has led her to wonder about a lot of stuff over the years. Like who decided that women shouldn't have body hair? And how sweaty is too sweaty? Also, why is breast cleavage sexy but camel toe revolting? Isn't it all just cleavage? These questions and others like them have led to the comforting and sometimes smelly revelations that constitute gross anatomy an essay collection about what it's like to operate the bags of meat we call our bodies. Divided into two sections, the top half and the bottom half, with cartoons scattered throughout, Altman's book takes the reader on a wild and relatable journey from head to toe as she attempts to strike up a peace accord with our grody bits. That summary as adapted from Goodreads. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations. Or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.